0: When do I get my watercolor? Oh, there's... I I honestly have no idea
1: what I'm doing with these watercolors. (laughs) (laughs) They're just building up into this huge pile. (laughs) Christmas is
0: coming. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) If if you're worried what to get me for Christmas, the answer is in your hands. Well, I know with with my watercolors,
1: I have gone to the point of buying envelopes, like hardback envelopes. There you go.
0: I'm close enough. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 262 of The Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. This week, the week that this episode is airing, is my birthday, my second pandemic birthday, hopefully my last pandemic birthday. Birthdays are a funny thing as you get older because they become less and less about things and about parties and more about time. You reflect on where you've been, where you hope to still go, who you are, who you were, and who you still may be. For my money, I like to make my birthdays a good use of time. Whether it's traveling, wandering around my city, seeing a friend or two, or some combination thereof. I like to mark the passage of time with spending at least one day wisely. A few years ago, I even got to spend the occasion with today's guest. Which is no small task since we live on opposite sides of the Atlantic. He helped me get my 40th year off to a good start, so I brought him back to (laughs) help me ring in number 43 and hopefully get it off to a good start. Simon Collum is here. How are you, man? Hello. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, just, uh, you know, it's evening over here.
1: Um, I've, you know, been rewatching, obviously, Saving Private Ryan, ready for the podcast. So,
0: yeah, no, I'm good. I'm really good. Very nice. Um, As Simon just tipped off, we are going to be talking about Saving Private Ryan here on episode 262. Um, The birthday show several years ago, I started dedicating it to one of my favorite films of all time uh, and just kind of picked through my letterbox list because for some reason or another, the end of May, beginning of June seems to be a really crummy time for movies to come out, and I got tired of talking about shit on the occasion of my birthday. Now, oddly enough, as it turns out, this episode will now mean that my entire Letterbox Top 4 has been covered in terms of my favorites on this podcast. So if you're curious, I will actually leave links for all four of my favorite films on Letterbox that we've discussed on this podcast, uh, Almost Famous the apartment and out of sight and now we'll include saving private ryan in that list so we will be discussing that on episode 262 we will be flipping the record over to play the other side but first we need to learn more about simon this is know your enemy Simon Collum has been on many, many, many shows, but as far as Know Your Enemy is concerned, he is a five-time guest. He first appeared in a single-digit show, episode number nine. talks about Right, yeah. We talked about Green Zone, and we learned the first film he ever saw in a theater was The Page Master. The last film he'd seen at the time was Kidulthood. The worst film he's ever seen is Bad Boys. The unseen classic or essential was what he called the 80s pop culture classics, Dirty Dancing, Ferris Bueller, The Breakfast Club, those kind of movies, he's since, of course, caught up. And the film he wished he made was Jurassic Park. Simon returned on episode 49, where we discussed the year in film for 2011. We did our top fives. We learned the film Everybody Else Dislikes That He Likes is the final two chapters of the Matrix trilogy, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions. The film Everybody Else Likes That He Doesn't is Driving Miss Daisy. The last film to make him cry is The King's Speech, In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Ryan Phillippe. And the movie he was watching next was Mission Impossible 2. Then Simon came back on episode 132 to talk about The Kingsman. We learned the film that made his love of film turn a corner is Shoah. His first date movie with his wife, Sarah, is Collateral. His sick day movie is The Dark Knight. The last film to leave him speechless was Whiplash. And his epitaph would be from White Heat. Made it, ma, top of the world. Finally, (laughs) Simon's last full episode was 8188. 8- 1- 8- we talked about Lady Bird. We learned the film he really digs but never wants to watch again was actually a pair of movies, A Prophet and 12 Years a Slave. The last film to genuinely freak him out was Saw the film that always makes him laugh is high fidelity his favorite movie soundtracks and he was able to keep it just to two is jurassic park and hannibal and the film he loves but nobody has heard of is a documentary about visual art called blurred lines all right buddy time for the fifth round when you go to a theater and you guys can go to a theater again talk about jealousy (laughs) where do you like to sit
1: I think I think the, the simple answer is if I can pick anywhere in the whole cinema, it's the middle of the cinema, you know, perfect view, all that kind of thing. But what I have become much more accustomed to is sitting on the front row, uh, often with my wife and my daughter alongside me, where you can pretty much spread out because nobody's down there. And at the end of the movie, if it's a good one, the music in the credits means that your daughter can run around and dance in the front area at the end. So the front row has become a little go-to spot for the cinema since my daughter has been born. It's been great. Are,
0: are we talking about like the very front or are we talking about there's a front row and an aisle that goes back and forth and then there's a few more rows in front of it?
1: See, I think when we first did it, I think the idea was that if we were at the front, uh, you know, there was no way, there was no distraction for Chivalry. Right. Like, if there was like, I mean, one time I went to a Toy Story 4, like press early morning screening thing yeah yeah and obviously it was rammed and we were right up in the rafters and uh she almost got very you know she she couldn't quite deal with it i had to i had to take her out you know yeah okay and so we've kind of realized since that point that actually we need to be right at the front there it's just the screen and us and you know and thought she's, she's never had a problem she's been very good actually at cinemas Okay.
0: I guess my question, though, is don't you find that a little like neck craning, overwhelming sensory overload? I mean, for her, I'm sure it's fantastic. But (laughs) but for you, do you find that that's just a little too immersive? I guess it depends which cinema. I mean, some cinemas are going to be more, you know,
1: you're going to be more looking right up at the screen, depending on how big the screen is. But generally speaking, I mean, the cinemas that we go to, there's normally quite a big rake, isn't it? Um, yeah yeah okay Um, and like i said that's perfect for siobhan to run around and dance uh during the end credits bear in mind not during a film
0: no no of course that
1: being said we have gone we went to the frozen two on like the opening day or something like that and we were sat at the front as we always do and somebody else came like sat right next to us and we were thinking oh they got this they're probably like-minded like us no 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 they basically went down to basically let their kids run amok for that Ah. entire film and so they were running around and in this open area and Siobhan, bless her, was just sat there, just like me and Tara, and we were just watching, and she was just like she didn't even understand what the other kids were doing. And Jeez. that that was why they went to the front, because they see it as a kind of
0: playground or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. Monsters. monsters. See- I find yeah, I find it's it's interesting because it's it depends on it depends on the theater, right? Like a lot of the the chain theater that's here in Canada, they have been trying to squeeze as much money out of the, out of movies as they can. So their front row is like absurdly front. But when I think about some of the theaters like Lightbox and those kinds of places, the front row is back by about like five or ten yards. You're you're right in it. That's for sure. But you're not like craning your neck or anything like that. Whereas the where the um with the multiplex, you're, you're a little bit too close. Okay, yeah. front row. All right, sounds sounds like a party. Even though Simon is a happily married man, and for the for the sake of this question, if you could theoretically go on a date with any movie character, who would you choose?
1: Initially, I thought this question was about movie dates. Like, who would I want to spend like a night out watching movies, talking movies with? And I was thinking Clarence from True Romance. He'd be a great guy to have a... Like like a play date, you know what I mean? And then right. I read the question. I was like, no, this is like romantic date. Who would like, I kind of want to have a date with? So I've got to be kind of attracted to them, and they look like and they seem like they'd be a lot of fun. So the two characters, the first one who came to mind was Clementine from yeah. uh, Eternal Sunshine. But I feel like that's all wrapped up in just the fact that the whole f- film is about this girlfriend who's great and stuff. So I think I'm going kind to of just becoming with Joel Barish is that Jim Carrey's character that's name? it yeah yeah you know I think I'm just pretending to live that life and Kate Winslet's gorgeous and she's playful and she's fun and then I thought and this is inspired I think is Fabienne
0: from Pulp Fiction which one was Fabienne the French French girl with the whole pot belly thing oh <laughs> it's it's been a minute since I've watched uh, Pulp Fiction <laughs> who is that actress Maria de Medeiros I actually wonder: Have I seen her in anything else? I, I, I nothing comes to mind
1: for me. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, I mean she's definitely. That that. I'm was sure she's. A, a I'm role. sure she's
0: been in other things. Like you don't just kind of t- like pop up in a movie like that and don't have a resume. So I'm like, I'm sure she's worked in plenty, but um, I don't think I've seen her in anything else. I, I like how she's very, very bubbly. She's very joy of life kind of thing. Like I, I can think in my head of her the way she says blueberry pancakes
1: yes why her I, I was trying to work out just think of these kind of this kind of sweet characters and whatnot and she just seemed like you know she's obviously meant to be a kind of perfect girlfriend to butch and you yeah i kind of think uh you know she, and she seems sweet and i wouldn't mind you know pot belly that's that sounds sweet <laughs> i like that that's cute um it,
0: I, yeah that's I, th- I think like i do like her her whole um mindset and philosophy on the you know what we are attracted to by touch and what we're attracted to by sight is is different like i think that would be a fun conversation to have on a date Mm -hmm. and i like like her outlook in that respect um you know clearly she's she's very easygoing. um kind of circling back on what you're saying though the one thing i I think would be cool to to go talk about movies with clarence is that uh you know like was it it wasn't Claire, was it Clarence or Alabama that said she always likes to have pie and talk about movies oh i can't i think it alabama would uh, yeah alabama I mean, uh, so, okay so 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 that's because i was gonna say it's, it's been a while since i've gone to a diner for pie so i'd like to go get some pie and talk about movies you like you've got a combination of a good answer here this is kind of like <laughs> somewhere between these three people is probably the perfect date so i like where your mind's at this question seems to lead itself to interpretation as well so do with it as you will simon Collum, what is the dirtiest film you've ever seen
1: Okay. again, I'm going to just make it difficult because first off, the first thing which came to mind, I thought dirty. And I thought Woody Allen films now have a kind of dirtier undercurrent to them. I don't think I've seen a Woody Allen film in about five years. And I spent a long time trying to watch all of them. I I think I got to about 80 percent of the filmography. But either way, it's difficult to watch Manhattan now um, at the very least. And yeah, I mean, you'll remember, you know, you and I would try and watch all the classics and all that type of thing. And I think it is difficult to watch that because there is a CD reality to it. Um, you know, no matter what the situation is, you know, what I mean, the fact of the matter is is that what he is depicting in his films is pretty, pretty ugly stuff. Which, which, it, strangely enough, it's kind of important to acknowledge that, you know, with. There was a time when I was watching and thinking, oh, this is fine. But I think now, rightfully, I, my, my attitudes have shifted. The way people are depicted and things like that, you know, it, it has changed. And so that's that's one thing which came to mind uh, initially. Um, but then separately to that, I thought about Shame, the Steve McQueen film, which is obviously uh, about sex addiction with Michael Fassbender. That's obviously pretty dirty and seedy, if that's where we're going. Or if we go into just, like, grim and dirty in a kind of, like... Uh, that's not nice. Human centipede. I guess that's pretty oh. dirty too.
0: Human centipede that was one of the films that Roger Ebert gave zero stars. He just rejected that from concept. I'll include a, a link to his review in the show notes if people want to read. But I, I I remember specifically that he thought that that was just a heinous idea. Forget about execution and forget about technique and presentation. He just said in in terms of the concept of what is at the center of human centipede. And I'm not even going to tell if people want to really find out what human centipede is about, and they don't already know do yourself a Google and just <laughs> don't do it at work um, is, is all I would say. Uh, but the, the, just the, the concept at the center of that movie, which I never did see, like, as soon as I found out about it, I was like, uh-uh, no, thank you that. Yeah. That is, that is actually like kind of exactly what I'm going for with this question. Cause that is really purely and truly filth um yeah. i mean you know it's it's crazy because shame is a movie that there is a lot of sex with the absence of love yeah, so yeah you could say that and but the thing about that still is that there's a philosophic intent to that movie and there there's a lot of gorgeous craft uh in in, in that movie as well so i think that that kind of counterweights the um compulsive sexual nature of Fassbender's character in that movie. Mm. And yeah, you know, you're, you're right. Like it, you know, context is very important when it comes to classic film and how the world changes. And sometimes you need to reframe these things when there is, uh, you know, still artistic merit. And while the artistic merit in Manhattan is still, you know, visual in terms of its photography, and some of the writing in terms of its clever observations the core story of uh, you know of a of a guy who kind of has a spin out after getting rejected by a teenage girl it, it played badly at the time you know yeah. 1979 was different than now but it played it played differently at the time it certainly should have been reframed in 1991 when you know the reality of Woody Allen's life came to light now we're kind of having that reckoning And now it's time to really put a lot of his work on the shelf and say, you know, this is something that's really not something that we want to spend time with. And like bullseye with that has got to be Manhattan, you know, Mm -hmm. just because of the nature of his relationship with the teenager um, at at the center of the story.
1: I haven't watched any Woody Allen. I don't think since, uh, since, since, you know, the revelation, I think probably from that me too period, really, what, 20 14 2018
0: 18. That- <laughs> time is a flat circle these days mm-hmm. I mean it's it, yeah it's it's been um it's been I, I mean listen in our in our podcast series that we did yeah. 10 years ago we did an episode on Woody Allen and if we were doing that podcast today I, I I don't think either one of us would choose to do an episode on Woody Allen
1: and the thing is, is that I'm not I'm not one for censorship either like I'm all for like th- it's important that these films remain available and there and something to that that can that will represent something with about society that he was on the one hand revered on the other hand depicted such stories which were of a very similar nature and you know i you know it's important that that context is there i did read something about um i think it was matt zoller's it might been, it might have been somebody else and they were they they re-watched some woody allen after everything and how it the shades are very different as to how you watch it and how you experience it. And in that respect, I think that might be the time when I would go back to it. But I think that's, that's a much more uncomfortable watch. You know, yeah. when we watched it way back when, there was an element of fun and charm. and it's, these, are, these are comedies to some extent, whereas I feel like the comedy element will be lost for the most
0: part. That's a really good answer. I mean, speaking of Manhattan, uh, that leads us to our next question. What is your favorite black and white film? Manhattan,
1: <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, no. Uh, so I, I thought uh, Third Man is a brilliant film, which I've watched on a few occasions. Just um, the music, you know, uh, Joseph Cotton Orson Welles, Wells, obviously in that incredible cameo. The direction, the Dutch angles. I mean, it's it, it's a masterpiece, isn't it?
0: So I'm gonna I'm gonna pose the question to you. That's on the the criterion commentary there's a criterion commentary track that's laid down by i believe it's tony gilroy and steven soderbergh The final shot of that movie that that iconic yeah. final shot of that movie where she's walking down the cemetery path and she's li- like the, the pear trees are lining her on both sides you can see that she's walking through a path of leaves like the, the pathway is covered with leaves yeah. and clearly they needed a few takes to do this but the leaves are not disturbed by any kind of track for like a dolly or, or like a golf cart or anything like that? So do you think that they, after every take that they drove her back down to the end of that path and then covered the leaves back over the tracks? Or do you believe they made her walk all the way to the end again and then come back) <laughs> One way or the other. I didn't know
1: where you were going with this.
0: (laughs) One way or another, there is some dumbass photography, like some dumbass filmmaking going on here in either making somebody walk really far back and forth, back and forth, or making somebody sweep the leaves back together after they drive her back. Which one do you think it was?
1: Sweep the leaves.
0: Okay. I think they made her walk all the way. (laughs) <laughs> i feel like that's my guess sweep
1: the leaves
0: yeah maybe t-shirt. they gave her a
1: bike i mean that's a t-shirt
0: uh, right? the, <laughs> the, the sweep the leaves the third man um yeah there there is no arguments with that that is like one of the film noirs that is that is just gorgeous in every respect um you know in in terms of just what is possible with photography like what you can do in in how you cast a shadow in, in where you put the light and where you put the camera. Uh, You know, there there's on top of the fact that you could just watch it and it just is wonderfully enjoyable uh, top to bottom. And it's not even that long. Is it like a hundred minutes?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a short film.
0: Yeah. I, I do love that in terms of it's black and white photography. It's one of those movies that you can point to and be like, this is one of the ones you got to watch if you ever want to like look at what black and white can do. This mm-hmm. is one of the ones you got to start with, and I don't think that's actually been the one of the answers to this question yet. So, well played. Yes. Last but not least, for now, what is a film you like but nobody would expect you to like?
1: Um, funnily enough, you know, i um, you know, I think the two sides to this coin is on the one side is the Saw series, which I'm a bit of a mug <laughs> for, and I've yet to see Spiral, so uh, don't spoil it, Ryan.
0: I <laughs> haven't seen it, so okay.
1: Uh, but I've kind of, I, I watched them all back in the day and I think I've seen all of them at the cinema as well. And I haven't missed a single one. And I don't, and I'm not even big into horror. Like that's the right. thing. It's like for some reason, like you talk to somebody, I say, you say, I say, oh, do you like Saw at all? And they say, oh no, I'm not into horror. And I'm kind of like, yeah, me too. I'm not really into horror, but I'm, I'm a big fan of
0: Saw. <laughs> <laughs> <pretty> seems- <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's just this kind of, I think it, there's a bit of fast to it. It's a bit hilarious. It's so gory. It, I, I feel like I can detach myself from the gore to some extent, and I like the kind of ridiculous ethical dilemmas <laughs> that are not really real. Well, like
0: when did you first come to the series? Like, were you watching them as they came along, or like yeah. did oh, yeah. some? Okay,
1: because from, from day one, I I didn't even see Iron Man at the cinema, and yet I saw Saw at the
0: you, cinema. It's funny because when I think about your taste in film, this is a hard question for you, I imagine, because your taste is actually quite broad.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty open to films, but I think as I've got older, I've definitely become less. I think when we when we were first blogging way back when, you know what I mean. I was much more watching such such a broader selection of films. Whereas right. now I definitely feel like it's all it veers towards a lot of modern stuff. I like to somehow keep up to date with films. Okay. Um, but I mean, I think that being said, I'm kind of all consciously aware that there's so many other stuff that I should be dipping my you know, toe into even now.
0: Like you say, when you when it comes to horror films, when it comes to genre films, a lot of times I believe that there's there's fans that are like all or nothing. You know, like that is, that is an area of film where people who love those kind of films, they love all of them. So they, they go down a very, very deep rabbit hole of all kinds of genre films and horror films. And that's most of their diet, right? Whereas, you know, the, the, the the more highfalutin cinephile might kind of drift over there when something like Midsummer comes out or The Witch. Uh, But generally speaking, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different beast. So, you know, somebody who likes horror amongst other things is is an interesting packet. And certainly when it comes to Saw, just because, like you say, that series gets kind of absurd. From what I understand, because I've only ever seen the one, that series gets <laughs> kind of absurd as it goes along.
1: I, I, I think that's the fun of it. Like, that's the thing right. is that, like, you kind of, you like your certain characters, not because they're brilliant actors and yeah, you know, and it's just such a it's just such a laugh. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's the thing. I kind of enjoy being, I enjoy the mythology of it, I guess. And <laughs> I do think more seriously though, I do think that um, a lot of the way films have that, you know, how like Fast and Furious has kind of expanded the world. Yeah, and obviously this was all before um, uh, the MCU and all that kind of thing. You know, yeah. I think Saw paved the way in kind of creating this mythos, having this almost episodic type of series every film that follows on straight after the previous one where characters come back and all that kind of stuff there was a real sense of i think they hit on something which people were there for every halloween myself included
0: well warm wishes and well wishes when you do get to see spiral um i I imagine that's probably what you're gonna you're gonna see that in the theater way before me that's for darn sure because tomorrow night tomorrow night oh Beautiful. I love it. Well, there we go. That's round five with Simon. We'll uh, learn more about him when he inevitably returns for round six. But uh, now it's time for an old new slang. We're going to talk about a movie from 1998. So I guess if you haven't seen this movie, you can consider yourself warned warrant for spoilers. Um, although I don't know anybody who would be listening to this who hasn't seen it. So come on back. We're going to talk about um, an old new slang selection on the occasion of my birthday. It's Saving Private Ryan right after this. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement, comme oh, s'aiment tous les amants. Et puis un jour, tu m'as quitté, depuis je suis désespéré. Je te vois partout dans le ciel, je te vois partout sur la terre. Tu es ma joie et mon soleil, ma nuit, mes jours. Saving Private Ryan is directed by Steven Spielberg, and it's written by Robert Rodat. It stars Tom Hanks, Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Jeremy Davies, Adam Goldberg, Barry Pepper, Giovanni Ribisi, Vin Diesel, and Matt Damon. Then a whole bunch of really famous people who come and go in little cameos, as is wont to happen in a Steven Spielberg movie. Saving Private Ryan is a World War II story that begins at the D-Day invasion On the beaches of Normandy. After a horrific battle sequence that shows us just the brutality involved with the Allied forces securing the shores of France, we follow Captain John Miller, that's Tom Hanks, as he is tasked with a special mission. Miller rounds up seven soldiers into a platoon and heads into France in search of one man, Private James Ryan from Iowa. That ends up being Matt Damon. Ryan had three brothers die in combat during the war, And the State Department has decided enough is enough. Ryan is to be found, wherever he may be, and sent home to Iowa without delay. The mission is a man. And eight soldiers will risk everything as they slip deeper and deeper into France, looking for one needle in a very big stack of needles. Saving Private Ryan is a contradiction. It's a story where an officer explains to us that lives are laid down so that exponential others can live. 2, four, ten, 10, or even 20 to 1. So as we get to the real crux of this tale and realize that 8 lives are about to be risked for one person, we listen to the characters keep questioning the order and ourselves begin to wonder how any one man can be worth the lives of several others. Pop quiz, hotshot. Why do you think the film puts such a paradox at its center?
1: I think for me, and it comes up a time and time again, is the idealism versus realism argument. I mean, it was the core, not to bloody mention Marvel, but like Captain America Civil War has the same core, you know, where you've got this idea, the idealism about that we protect this one man, you know, that he's got, his mum has lost three, three sons. We should get this one boy back. This is important. And, from that kind of perspective that's you get it there's there's so much heart in it the reality being risking eight people's lives for the sake of one like the maths just doesn't add up you know right. ed burns constantly glaring and just being so angry because he's clearly such so pragmatic like this clearly is illogical what we're doing but there's something the idealist in me anyway is obviously rooting for them to say that one soldier and obviously they play with that even more so when they actually find him anyway you know what i mean and that he doesn't even want to go you know because yeah. of his duty that core idealism versus realism
0: it is an interesting paradox to put at the center of a movie and that was why i wanted to ask you why you think it's there because the reality of it is that when push comes to shove and we get you know we to skip ahead to the end of this and we you know, listen as Captain Miller tells Private Ryan that he needs to earn this, that he needs to live a good life and earn the sacrifice that's been laid down for him. You would question, like, how is any one person's life worth the the lives of, I guess at the end of it, it's six. And the reality is it's not. There's no one person in the world that is worth the lives of six. Mm. It's a complete contradiction. But then at the same time, so is war. The idea of killing for peace is a complete oxymoron. Yeah. So that you might as well, you know, pack sacrifice in because sacrifice in its in its very nature is a contradiction. I believe as well, the reason why that paradox is at the center of this movie is it's the most human way to allow us into something so inhuman as war. This movie gets a lot of accolades for its, it's an audio medium, so people can't see that. I'm using air quotes. Authentic portrayal of world war ii combat and how vicious and brutal and intense and unrelenting it could be you can't just show that kind of of story and just expect everybody to go on with their night you know you can't just turn the lights on after after they're done in ramel and expect everybody just to go on with their day if that was the core of the story like that's that's a whole different type of torture porn really um you need a human element to this and this kind of story of one soldier in the middle of all these soldiers, I believe it's the most human way into a story of World War II theater.
1: People, whenever you have a war film, I think people like to kind of think to themselves like, is this pro or anti-war? More often than not, you have this conflicted answer, you know? And I think in Saving Private Iron, there's no difference. You know what I mean? In that World War II did happen. it's actually happened and people did die to fall you know us to live as it were you know um that being said we can also reflect on that and and acknowledge the horror you know what i mean that's also true you know what i mean and the cost that had that that shouldn't have happened as it were
0: and that's
1: uh, worth acknowledgement as well
0: yeah. You know, in, in terms of a question that I know the answer to this, you know, usually we begin with just our general thoughts on the movie. And I usually like to start by asking somebody, so what did you think? I know you like this movie. <laughs> That's what's actually one of the reasons I'm happy that you're here to talk about it with me, knowing that it's one of my all time favorite movies. What did you come away with thinking about as you rewatch the movie in, in advance of this podcast?
1: Watching it again, I think I'm trying, when I, when I, you're watching each person in that unit, you get like these kind of little snippets of their characters. And I think some characters get, much more uh, short shrift really than others you know you don't get as much I mean granted it might be a problem if you I mean it's two and a half hour film you haven't got much space to get more but some characters you just don't know very much about at all but of course Upham is such an interesting character uh, you know which they have you know this kind of bit of a klutz obviously terrified of war and this is Jeremy Davis's character and I think his his character on this watch is so interesting because, of course, it's him who completely disagrees with killing the German who shot, was it Wade, Giovanni Ribisi's character. Right. And so you see him constantly like following Miller. Can you see this? You can't just kill him. This is crazy. That's a really moral stance to take in such circumstances. But that being said, you then see him later on, and you know that if he just went up those stairs, he would have he would have saved his, uh, the fellow soldier's life. Yeah. And, and, and then the conflict also that the person who Captain Miller, the German who Captain Miller says walk however many faces, does come back and is in fact, you know, is somebody who's key to that final Rommel thing in, in, in killing people as well. So there's so many interesting things wrapped up in just Upham's storyline. There's an element of then a little bit of frustration that you don't get as much depth with the other people in the team. But I, I, I get that. I get they couldn't
0: do that. I think one of the things I came away with thinking about with this movie, and I don't know if it's just me pining after I've been sitting on my couch for a year and not able to go to a cinema, but this is a film that I believe really speaks to the power of a dark room and a big screen. Um, you know, one of my questions in Know Your Enemy is what is a film that left you speechless? And literally, this was I maybe the first film to ever really leave me speechless. It was a weird series of events that brought me to the movie. I mean, I was interested in the movie for sure, but I was working retail at the time and I was helping a, a, an older gentleman um, and I had, there was a, a job where I had to wear a name tag. And he saw that my name is Ryan and he says, there's a, there's a big movie coming out with, your, with your, your name in it. And I said, yeah, I said, I, I want to see it. And I remember him saying, you should see it. Um, and, and he was right. You know, like if I had have just waited off and seen this movie on video, um, it wouldn't have done the same thing to me as it did that first time where it basically just beat me senseless, um, with, you know, sacrifice and with grandiosity in terms of really driving its message home. I was, I was missing that a little bit watching it on the couch. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen it in a theater three times. I've seen it from the from my couch far more than that. Um, and it still does affect me in a lot of ways. But I, I remember thinking when I watched it in anticipation of this show that this is a movie that's power is built for a cinema. You know, like everything about it is is engineered to use that dark room as the most potent delivery device for its idea.
1: And to think it's even you know, over 20 years old now. I mean, it hasn't, you know, it, it's still, I mean... Oh, it holds up. Yeah, this movie has not aged a oh, day. Yeah. Oh
0: my God, yeah. Like you were talking about, um, Upham is usually the one that people cling to the most um, in terms of the characters. And you're right, the, 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 the unit of eight soldiers, some of them do get a little bit short-shifted. Like, I don't think we learn near enough about jackson the character the, the sniper played by barry pepper we're a little shy on Melish, the jewish older played by adam goldberg mm-hmm. the, and, and i mean even sergeant horvath played by tom sizemore we don't really go that mm-hmm. far into his story the others we actually get quite a bit of time with and i think that is one thing i like about this movie is how it wants to humanize them you know it doesn't want them just to be muddy faces in green shirts.
1: And, and, that's, that's, and that's vital, isn't it? To kind of have, these are obviously real people, you know, in, some, in, in, in many respects, you know what I mean? Obviously it's based on, in, a, in a real setting, these, these people had actual families. And I think things like when that scene with Giovanni Rabisi talking about his mom and how yeah. he knew she was there and yet he would pretend to be asleep and he didn't know why he did that. There's something so, watching it, it was so powerful. That idea of you do these things and you just think, I'll bet in that context. See, my takeaway from when he says that is that he wishes he spent more time with his mom and this and expectation that he's he's probably never going to see her again. Yeah. And that's so, so heartbreaking.
0: Let's be honest. Steven Spielberg has never been accused of being a subtle filmmaker. You know, a lot of what he wants to say is really out there in the open. But a lot of the character elements of these of these men is in the subtleties is it's it's in the in-between like it is rabisi talking about pretending he was asleep when his mother came home late after a shift even though he would usually try so hard to stay up so that he could talk to her he doesn't outright say man i wish i'd stayed up those few times i he, he does say yeah. i don't know why i did it yeah. but he doesn't he doesn't say i man i you know i'm sorry i did And it's kind of like his, you can sort of see his eyes kind of flicker with like a little like wrapped in tears. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's a lot of those, those little moments with, with these men. I mean, even just kind of, again, skipping ahead to the end, the moment of acceptance between Rybin and Ryan, it's quiet and it's quick. It's just, it's a, it's a quick nod right before they're about to start shooting. You know, there's no long drawn out conversation of, Hey man, I know that this is messed up and I know that I got, I was really hard on you when we first met, like there's none of that. Right. Mm. It's just a quick nod and on we go. Mm. Um, so we get that humanization of these soldiers, of these, these instruments of war. And I think what that also helps is this movie also really goes to great lengths to show how at risk they are. Like, Along the way, it, it becomes blatantly clear. Don't become attached to anybody because in the next cut, you may lose them.
1: Ed Burns' character is very is is one character who you don't who we don't get much kind of knowledge of really his backstory. And I think he's probably the one who you almost want. I think I feel like because he's so kind of uh, strict about what his perspective and where he stands. Um, I think you kind of want. I, I didn't feel like I really knew. The justification for that.
0: Well, I mean, here's the thing: it's there. It's not blatant, but it's there. He's he's from Brooklyn, which you yeah. know he's he's happy to tell you and write it on the back of his jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's from Brooklyn. Brooklyn in the 40s was very very working class. Like Brooklyn in the 40s versus Brooklyn now is life and death. Brooklyn used to be like an other when New York was concerned, right? Like if you lived in Brooklyn, you you lived like downtown. You didn't you you weren't living the high life. So he's working class likely immigrant parents. Um, You know, Edward Burns is, is second generation Irish. So that I think that that's, that's not a fluke that he's there. He talks about that his mother ran a dress shop. So, uh, you know, like we're there, it's, it's in the margins, but it's never as overt as the stories that Wade gets to tell, or that Ryan tells about like his, his brothers in the barn or anything like that. It, you know, you got it, you kind of got to work for it, but it's there. So and and even just kind of the way, just his attitude. Like the cool thing about this unit is you have three blunt instruments in Rybin, Jackson, and Caparzo. You know, like you got just three oafs who can shoot, and then you have these three other kind of intellectuals. You've got Wade, who's got a brain in his head. You can tell Melish has read a book or two, and Upham, of course. And the reality is it of it is. It doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter what they believe in, like what their politics are or what their background is. They've all got a job to do and they've got to do it.
1: What do you think with regards to Uppen, Um, He's obviously writing a book on brotherhood. He says that early on. Yeah. So let's extrapolate from that and assume that by the end of the, following the film, he writes his book. What is his book generally going to be
0: saying? <laughs> I mean, I, I love your optimism that you think that he wrote that book yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the end of this book. There's, I, uh, the more I watch this movie, the more I think when that boy went home, he was gone. You look at him after that after that battle in Ramel, and he's only half there uh, anymore. I, I, I really think that he is a guy who went on to have a very, very troubled life. But I think if he did write his book... I believe that he writes about the contradiction. I believe that he writes it from the perspective of somebody who had his whole philosophy turned on his head. You know, he, he is the guy who who he'll sit down and write it and talk about the men and talk about the brotherhood and, and then the, the, the way to obey orders. But in there is, you know what, sometimes you're just going to go off. Like sometimes you're going to see the guy who killed your guy and you're just going to kill him. I I really, that's the one thing over the, over time that I have really latched onto about this movie is my worry for the life of Timothy Upham in his life after this credits mm-hmm. roll. I have nothing but worry for him because I don't think he was okay when this movie was done.
1: See, don't, don't get me wrong. I think I think that the side of it, I kind of think, especially after that, that I, I feel like, him killing that guy at the end is kind of a resolution for him doing what he should have done before. And so I think, I'd, I hope, and this is, again, my optimism, perhaps <laughs> my hope is, is that the whole situation on the stairs is something that he will be able to chalk up to a kind of, um, shit gets crazy in war. You know what I mean? Like what are you going to gets crazy
0: in war? But I mean, that was yeah. murder. <laughs> like no, that was, no, no, you know no, what i mean much. like the man had surrendered that was no, they, like he, this is he had he had <laughs> surrendered once already and this guy went to bat and said he has surrendered the rules of war say that we need to take him as a pow we need to turn him in there they're, you know i guess isn't yeah I I, I, get it, just, but
1: I I, don't think it's a case of condoning or, or you know, oh, no. No condoning here i mean i'm just saying i think for him as a character
0: yeah no but that's what i'm saying like for him as a character like that is he's going to need to live with that part he's not going to talk about it that's for damn sure which of course that that's that's a whole other ball of wax that's the thing is is his the the older i get and the more i think about his transformation the the deeper i worry about him living with it later you know i'm sure like I'm, i'm sure that soldiers had things like this and they were able to compartmentalize and go on with their lives this one particular character because of just the way his brain clearly works and 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 his morals and his code i really wonder about how he went back to regular life after killing a nazi in cold blood don't get me wrong if anybody deserves to be killed it's nazis yeah. Let, me, let me be very clear about that. But still, you, are know, you trying to say <laughs> no, there are not very fine people on both sides. You know, there are good people and there are Nazis. Murder still murder. That's that's. Yeah, I yeah, guess yeah. that's where I'm going. That's true. Um, yeah,
1: that I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I like I said. I don't. I don't. Obviously, I don't disagree with mo- most of the, what you're saying. I just feel like if you're watching this and you're kind of a pro-military, pro-war type of person whatever that would look like necessarily um i suspect you would see upham's character as by the end he realizes how brutal war is and that sometimes you gotta do that
0: yeah you know yeah I mean? that's and that's and, that... and people
1: who'd watch that that you know and I, I you know probably not you and i but there were people who watched that uh, and that is his arc in that he, he he's, he's basically a bit of a softy at the start and by the end he's hardened up and he's really he knows what he has to do in war that's yeah. what some people view it as.
0: And I say if you went looking for Corporal Timothy Upham in nineteen forty eight, you'd find a guy with a heavy drinking problem. Front and center, of course, in this movie is Tom Hanks. Um, you know, by this point in in film history, Tom Hanks was, you know, kind of a brand unto himself. There's a lot of intricacies in his performance that I think kind of goes overlooked. You know, like a lot of people make a lot of things of his leadership and the, you know, the the, the rationale of risking lives for other lives and earnest and that kind of thing. Watching it this time, I was actually really struck with a lot of the quieter moments of his performance or or just those those little glimmers that really give you an insight into how he realizes that this is a job. It's things like one thing that I caught this time that I never really did catch before is when they get to that that first town. And he runs into, first they run into Paul Giamatti, then they run into Ted Danson. And uh, Ted Danson is another officer, so he can speak a little bit more freely when he's when he's talking with another officer. Ted Danson plays Captain Fred Hamill. And Hamill says to Miller, I get what you're doing here. And Miller's first response is, you do? Like, really incredulously. And it's go, it, like blinking, you'll miss it. You know, but like that kind of thing where you can see that Miller doesn't completely buy it, but he's not going to question the order.
1: Uh, this is it. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think another point that makes the same point is when um he, when they're sifting through the dog tags. Yeah. And the reality is, is that Miller is among the people sifting through them. You yeah. Know what I mean, I did find that scene when they sift through the dog tags kind of are we supposed to think these guys are, aren't are very, aren't particularly nice? The fact that they're so flippant with these dog tags. Um, and it's only Rabisi's character who intervenes and says, you know, they're literally, everyone can see what you're doing. You know, Miller himself, you see, it cuts to him, you know, chuckling at the jokes the lads are making on the table. Yes. As they sift through these, you know, things and they're spitting on them and trying to read them and everything. And I think... Yeah, no. In that same moment, you get a sense of how Miller is a bit more like them than he is like Ribisi or, of course, Upham. And and if they and to be honest, if they shot that German soldier after uh, Ribisi was killed, he wouldn't have stopped it. Do you know?
0: No. Yeah. He, he 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 Like you really get an idea that he's about ready to turn a blind eye, and yeah. that you know it's it's only the fact that the, the situation escalates that he really kind of snaps back to the fact that he's an officer and that he needs to take charge here. I,
1: I don't uh, think it's snapping back. I think it's probably more a sense of leadership and ensuring that, you know, he's keeping everybody happy. You know, um, I think there's plenty of time when he's close. But, I mean, yeah, I mean you know, really? like it's up on his case and said, are you going to let him do this? Are you going to let him do this? And yeah. obviously, you know, Rabisi's deceased and, you know, he probably, you can work out where he would have stood on this situation. And so I think there's a lot of things going on, but ultimately the time that passes, you know, he, and he lets the whole thing play out. I mean, you wonder if Tom Sizemore's character shot Ed Burns' character, (laughs) would he have just let that pass? You know what I mean? Because that went on a little bit. Granted, he then intervened. I'm not taking away from ultimately he did the right thing, but there's a period there where he didn't. And he quite consciously waited to almost (laughs) see what happens before intervening.
0: What is explicit in that scene is his decision just cost a man. On top of the fact that they're, they're on a mission where the lives of eight are being put in the, in the hands of the lives of one. His decision just cost them a guy and a really important guy at that. You know, like they just lost their medic. They begged him not to go towards that radio tower and just, just keep on going. That's their mission. Like, don't get into this. You know, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a radio tower there and there's Nazis there and they're, they're probably broadcasting positions and that's shitty, but we are about to put ourselves into a very bad situation on top of the very bad situation that we're already in. Police captain don't do this. And he's like, no, we're doing it. So in that moment when, you know, when Wade is dead and they've got a Nazi prisoner and the, the, his unit is arguing over whether to kill him and whether to shoot each other, he's got that weighing on him. Like that is entirely his mm-hmm. fault, his call. Mm-hmm. And Hanks plays that in a really, really beautiful way. He goes through all these stages real quick. I think that's an, that's another one of these moments where they allow him to break down and cry for, for a second or two. Yes, it is. Um, he's obviously wrestling with a lot of anger. You can sense that. And yeah. Hanks drifts from one to the other, to the other, to the other, just so easily and it really shows you just like what kind of an actor he is and what kind of relationship at that point he had with Spielberg
1: he is incredible because like all this kind of nuance he really does carry it well and you therefore you can't quite place exactly where he is on certain issues and that's and rightfully so.
0: This movie of course when people talk about it they tend to cling deeply to the opening and a little bit lesser to the ending but they talk about these bookends of the the Omaha Beach sequence and then the Battle of Ramel, I believe that this movie is is more than those. I, I think that that's a lot what, what a lot of people take away from it, but I, I believe that this movie is more than that. But we need to talk about those sequences.
1: The the opening is just without a doubt one of the greatest openings in cinema, really, isn't it? I mean, there's not there's not really much question to that.
0: It wasn't done before. I mean, I think that's that's the thing that gets lost now. Twenty three years later geez time flies that sequence that kind of carnage that kind of intensity in a war film really had never been depicted um you would get you would get war films that would get a little bloody you know sometimes like i remember hamburger hill is a little rough platoon is a little brutal at times but never to the tune of 20 something minutes of just, you know, literally full frontal assault, and watching that it wasn't just a matter of guys getting shot; it was a matter of guys getting ripped apart, guys drowning, all of this stuff that they just jammed into twenty three minutes, and executed so unbelievably well. Like it sounds incredible, it looks incredible. Um, it, it's like you say, it's it's an unbelievable way to open a movie like this
1: you could i mean going back to what we were saying about the kind of anti-war post you know uh, pro-war kind of position of this film i would say that it's quite clearly anti-war and that this opening pretty much establishes that from the get-go and of course that's why when you get to the point when they're like you've got to save this one guy and you've seen this horror sequence effectively at the start you're like yeah because people want to go out because even when they find the kind of fake (laughs) ryan guy he's kind of like but my brother's okay you can hear he's just like let me go home please (laughs) you know it's like everybody just wants to go home and even with miller he just wants to go home when at the heart of it you know what i mean if it gets him one step closer to his wife then then he then he'll do it and so you just kind of think it's not really about the war is it no. you know what i mean and in fact you know when you look at how horrendous it is from the moment they land on the beach and it's just a bloodbath and it's it's just you know and it has to be for you to go fundamentally this is not right you know there's no glory in this
0: no no there's i mean there's there's a lot of there's a lot of weeping on that beach there's a lot of tears on that beach there's a lot of prayers on that beach uh, there, there's, there, there literally are boys crying for their mother. Oh, um, it, it, like, it, that's the thing is anybody who talks about like the glory of war, the glory of killing, the righteousness of killing, this movie wants them to take a really long, hard look at exactly what's involved with shooting another person, you know, or, or with another person stepping on a bomb mm-hmm. and say, really, do you, like, this is really what you want to do? Um, and, and yeah, like it, it's crazy because in another movie, this kind of sequence would be a centerpiece. This kind of, this kind of sequence would be either the middle or the end. And I think like, you know, you get echoes of the opening in Ramel. Rommel is also as intense, but now instead of it being the constant barrage, it's staggered over several people who now you care about. Like, I think that's the one merciful thing about that sequence is aside from tom hanks you have no idea who you're really supposed to care about so if you lose a guy you know if a guy's face gets blown off if a guy you know he's he's looking around the beach for his his severed arm and he picks up his arm you don't know who you're supposed to be clinging to you know i think that's the mercy of that that sequence
1: and it's important to remember that a ryan brother died on that beach i mean it could have been you know uh Francis James Francis Ryan (laughs) yeah it could have been Matt Damon you know and you know the idea that that one person is important enough for you know what this this unit to find and yet you you know every single one of those people on that beach who died is is one person with their own mums with you know akin to what Ed Byrne says you know I got a mum why 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 can't I go home kind of thing you know and yeah, yeah, and it, like you said that's that's that internal that that's the, that fascinating conflict in the film.
0: you know, everybody talks about the opening of this movie and the and you know I, I I mirror it with with the end of this movie in the French town of ramel. One thing that needs to be discussed is that's not the beginning and the end of this movie. there is a prologue and there is an epilogue oh, yeah. and these things have actually led to criticism, certainly in the in the immediate release of the film and in the aftermath that it's this syrupy introduction this you know this very very um nostalgic way to enter and leave this film what do you make of that like do you think that this criticism is there do you think it's a valid criticism
1: I, i think it's a valid criticism i think it's a more of a functional way in to the film i think you know titanic does a similar thing doesn't it um you know i think it's that way of kind of bookending it in in the current era so it's not like an, you know, I can imagine it being this kind of uh, production element of, you know, we need to, we need to have this kind of contemporary element to the film. Otherwise audience will just think it's an old film or something. And I think that might've been something at the time. I feel like there's a few more examples of those type of epic films set in these historical events that are bookended by kind of current things reflecting back or, you know, in some way it kind of goes back in time. Does that, does that make sense? Like I said, it does. does the same thing. I'm sure there's more,
0: yeah, I mean, like i I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with the prologue and the epilogue. I think that if you were to drop people into the deep end of d day and then you know send them on their way after Ramel, I think that you would like you'd be risking an awful lot of p t s d after this movie <laughs> if you didn't ease people in and, and gently ease them out, but you could' done that you could have done that in the context
1: of the era. Well, you could have
0: I what I think, like if I'm being hard on this movie, and sure, why not after 23 years, I would say that I think that there was a, a gentler way to do it. That's, you know, Spielberg being who Spielberg is, he makes it the most uh, you know, Norman Rockwell honey tinted version of a man going to a cemetery and a man conf- confronting the reality of sacrifice. I think there was a more elegant way in and out. You know, you can use the same guy and you can use him going to the, going to the cemetery. I don't think you need to say as much as you say. And I think that there's a different way to capture that, but I wouldn't, I would never take them out completely. Cause I think without them, this movie is a big old dose of shell shock.
1: I wouldn't say you know going cold at those um things on the beach which it kind of has at the start when you first fade into that beach um but you know i just feel like this contemporary thing it's just a functional way to kind of contextualize the story and i, I, I and just from another perspective you know the american flag at the end you know
0: yeah i mean you know,
1: there's no need for that you know no. <laughs> yeah, it suddenly makes this world war which you know I, i'm not expecting i mean i'm not one of those people who would even say like you know britain yeah you know, we did x y and z in the war. Like, I, you know it was a collective effort and i just and, and it's not really about one country or another but you kind of make it about one country by having an american flag at the end which is where i go eh, you know,
0: yeah i mean i've i've spoken about that before and, and talked about how that was kind of one of the little one of the strong arms of this movie that that kind of left me as a Canadian scratching my head and wondering why we needed to do that because it was like you say, it was a collective effort. This is not a perfect movie. Like there, there's all kinds of flaws that we can pick with it, but those are, this is kind of the beginning of Spielberg, not knowing how to certainly not knowing how to end his movies and not always knowing how to get in either. So it's, it's one of those, one of those little knits I like to pick is the beginning and the end of this movie. They, they, I think they could have done, they, they could have done with another pass. it's it's one of those things where you know for for like to say to somebody you like you you need like you're gonna get out of here you know regardless of what you do you just need to you need to be a good person you Mm -hmm. know i don't care who you were before this going forward you just you need to treat people well like you know uh, miller makes a joke about how he needs to cure a disease or invent a longer lasting light bulb i don't think that's actually what he wants him to do he just wants him to live a good life you know, and that's that is what old private old Mr. Ryan asks his wife. I don't think again you need to put it quite so bluntly. It's it, at the time when I saw it when I was twenty and and listened to him ask that. It kind of broke my heart <laughs> just because it's yeah. it's a really hard thing to confront. But I don't know if you necessarily need to articulate it within the film.
1: I, I think as well, there's there's that element, isn't there, of taking things too literally. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's obviously yeah. not about the literal person of this particular man who lived to be an old man. It's about all of us. We have all we are all descendants of those who survived the war and therefore we all have a duty. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's the point. But I would have thought I think funnily enough, you know, verbalizing that, I kind of think to myself, well surely that would be an interesting way to kind of show that. You know what I mean? And show the that you know, kind of transition to a kind of contemporary sense of we are all in a very, look at this, rather than, I don't know, reducing it to this one person.
0: I think one of the last things I want to mention is for a movie that is really brutal and a movie that is very heavy, there's oddly enough an awful lot of levity in this movie. It does, mm. What do you make of dotting... Fubar. Yeah, well, the fubar. What do you make of dotting the carnage with levity. Like, you know, I mean, you mentioned earlier the moment where they happen upon the wrong private Ryan played by Nathan Fillion, actually, you know, like things like that, like where, like James Frederick Ryan is crying, thinking that his grammar school brothers are dead, you know, and and, in that moment, like we are meant to laugh, you know, or moment like those kinds of, those kinds of moments.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's, I I think, you know, those, those moments, you know, there's a certain, you know, desperation on his part, wanting to just get out of the war and stuff like that. And I think, you know, we're supposed to see the light side to it, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I laughed,
0: but I mean, I guess like, do you think it, do you think it's jarring that, that a, a heavy movie has moments of humor? Do you think it's disrespectful that I movie, like talking about, you know, when, when private Ryan is talking with captain Miller and he's talking about his brothers in the barn and he describes his brother's girlfriend as a girl who took a nose drive out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. You know, it, like, my theater laughed. My yeah. theater was laughing a lot in that, in that scene um like what like what do you think of, of the balance of these two things
1: i, I think it's, yeah it's, it's that whole thing isn't it getting that you know you know you're kind of you're, you're kind of stealing yourself aren't you for the big ramel fight when you've got that story and you have ed burns and his kind of story about what is his boss's wife or something like that
0: because yeah his um, superintendent's wife
1: that's it and you just kind of think that's really what's going on it's just this little moment of levity because we know it's coming and we know they're ready. And of course, it's moments they're on that same place, aren't they? When they can hear the tanks coming in, yeah. Harry it does those awesome hand gestures.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 crazy because you know as, as much as I like to like take swipes at at Spielberg saying that that intro and that exit are clumsy, all of these other moments are actually handled amazingly well. You know, like that, that's the thing is you put this movie into into other hands, and those little jokes. They might start to distract from from the matter at hand. They might they might not land. Like you may try to put them in there, but people don't laugh. And yet everything everything every time he tries to go for something funny, it actually lands.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I think I think we I think we as an audience are waiting for some something anything <laughs> to, to kind of ease,
0: yeah. ease the pressure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we're, we're just happy one of these guys isn't about to be shot. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, we could be talking about this movie all day. We've been talking about it for quite some time already. Um, Simon and I are both fans. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I, I first of all, I don't know why you listen to us talk about it for 40 minutes, but I hope that we've talked you into it. Um, if you haven't watched it in a while, maybe go back to it because it, it holds up amazingly well. I know a lot of times that there's these movies that seem incredibly epic at the time, and then you go back to them after a few years and you're like, what was the fuss about that? um but I, I having both of us having watched it this week um i do believe we could both come down on the side of saying that it holds up really really well 23 years later
1: incredibly well i mean yeah. that, that's one of the biggest achievements of it i think
0: yeah and, and you know we're we're not going to rate this movie because we obviously both love it but we will end our uh review here with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you want to take away from this movie and keep you would uh simon Collum, what would be your souvenir from saving forever ryan the letter, um, that oh man, you want, want that letter?
1: Vin- okay, well, no, I don't want that letter. Is it, it Vin Diesel's uh, character? What's his name? Capazzo? Capazzo? Uh,
0: Caparzo Caparzo
1: Caparzo. So I think that's that's a really telling moment because there's a moment when who's it? You see Miller and Hanks and Tom Sizemore talking about Vecchio and having a laugh and what rationalizing how Miller rationalizes things, and Rabisi sat there rewriting the letter that he wrote to his dad so it's not covered in blood yeah and it would be sent and um and it's always like that's a very human thing to do that's the right thing to do And I think there's an element of criticism there.
0: Wade strikes me as the kind of guy who is, who would just do that. Like Wade is one of, he's not one of the blunt instruments. He's one of the thinkers. He kind of strikes me as the kind of guy who would just do that because he's from a, he's not working class. He's a guy who's got a little bit more education and he knows that this is something honorable. You know, why I say you want that letter is because what you realize after you watch this film once through is the carrier of that letter is always marked, you know, every, every, soldier who's got that letter on him dies which really makes me worry about ed burns because he takes the letter off captain miller at the end my souvenir um i'm going with something far more frivolous um at the beginning of this movie after d-day when uh miller is getting his orders he happens upon a station of officers that have hot coffee poured and they've got a hot shave on the go yeah, yeah. they're also pulling sandwiches those sandwiches look amazing that's the it, point there isn't yeah, a- yeah yeah the meat was sliced really thick the bread was sliced really thick the that food stylist deserves a raise i <laughs> want one of those sandwiches really bad they look fantastic like that that was through the eyes of a very very hungry man you yeah. know that that was that was execution done well and i really would love one of those sandwiches um saving Private ryan one of my all-time favorite movies um if you haven't seen it please watch it and if you have Go back and revisit it it's a really good movie we're going to take a quick break here we're going to flip the record over to play the other side come on back right after this we're back he's simon column i'm ryan mcneil off mic we were talking about how time changes our lives and our, our respect for various movies. You've probably missed a doozy of a philosophic conversation between two middle-aged men. It's episode 262 of the Matt and Cast. We've been talking about Saving Private Ryan. Um, this is the other side. It's the moment where we go further down the spiral. We talk about further reading. Um, Mr. Column, why don't you get us started? What is a movie that you would think is uh, appropriate to go on to after somebody has spent three hours Saving Private Ryan?
1: I think it, it's the obvious one, really, but it, I can't help but think of Dunkirk.
0: Um, oh, that actually wasn't what I thought you were going to go to. Oh, yeah, okay, I, Dunkirk. Uh, yeah,
1: my reasoning is just like I think again it has that. I don't think like there's nothing pro-war about Dunkirk in my opinion. I remember when it first came out, there were there was an article somebody wrote saying that Chris Nolan's gone more, you know, uh, <laughs> more conservative in his views and all that kind of stuff. I, and and but I don't think like. In the same way that from the moment you start watching Saving Private Ryan, it's very much, this is horrific. This should never happen and should never have happened in the way it does, you know? Granted, or maybe not, maybe maybe it's not saying that. It's just reflecting on the horror of what has happened in the past and how awful it was. Uh, But I think in the same way with Dunkirk, there's an element of... That when you look at the characters, especially um, Fion Whitehead's lead young soldier, he is just trying to survive. I mean, everybody, for the most part, they're just trying to survive. There's no glory. There's no war is one thing or another. These are just young people desperately trying to survive, and in some respects, that's exactly the same as Saving Private Ryan.
0: The difficulty, I think, now with telling a war story is, what do you tell? Or hundred years into the the world of cinema there have been hundreds and hundreds of war stories across all manner of conflicts by this point we know war is hell so it's like what do you what do you tell and i think what i like about dunkirk is that like you say it and and it it, it mentions this at the end just in case it wasn't clear there is honor in survival You know, like when, anytime we run up against um, a a, a person who's going into conflict, we always say, get home safe. You know, and that is you, that is always why we support the troops that go into conflict is they're not the ones making the decision to go. You know, they're, they're not the ones who are going into battle. They're not the ones in the bunker back home who are deciding to invade the north of France where there's a whole bunch of guns ready to kill them. They're the ones that are just given the job and go do the job you know we're not even talking about cowardice which is a whole other really like deep deep well that we could get into when it comes to your own life you know and and the life of somebody else we're just talking about you know get home safe and i think that is really the core of dunkirk is at this point in world war ii england was back on its heels england was taking a pounding uh, at the beginning and was like quite literally backed into a corner. Nolan finds a way to tell this story in in an interesting fashion. Like you can see that's the thing is you could have told the story of Dunkirk in a linear fashion and it would still be impactful, but to do that neat little trick of the concentric circles of time of 90 minutes, you know, a hundred hours and whatever the one is in between it, 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 takes you that that level deeper into the conflict
1: I I think but I've always felt that with Dunkirk that's purposeful that's more than just a trick I think the idea is that perspective is different depending on what you're going through and you can never know another person's experience and what they've been through whether it's been what they've been through in the last day what they've been through in their in the last week or the last whatnot and I think that's reiterated by, at the end with the blind, the blind guy who's handing out things. Mm -hmm. And who is it? Um, I think it's Fionn Whitehead kind of takes something from him and then Harry Styles kind of just walks past it. And then when they get on the, and you realize he's, Fionn Whitehead realizes he's blind. And then when they get on the train, I think Harry Styles goes, did you see that guy? He didn't even look at us.
0: Right, right. And he just
1: kind of dismisses it. And it's like, he doesn't realize he's blind yeah Yeah, beyond white and doesn't say anything but the point is is that we have different perspectives that we bring to things and we have different experiences and those experiences change who we are but ultimately we we don't know we can never know what another person has been through right and of course in the context of dunkirk that time frame thing is part of that story and part of that point being reiterated that we don't know other people's you know, experiences.
0: Yeah, it's it's an incredible film. Uh, it's actually been a while since I've gone back to it. So uh, thank you for reminding me that I need to give it another look. Um, Dunkirk, uh, I, I'd certainly prefer watching this to watching Tenet again. I can tell you that much. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny. When you mentioned the obvious comparison, that actually is not where I thought you were going to go. The, okay. Where I believe the obvious comparison is just in terms of time um, because another film came out the same year that usually gets bundled in with Saving Private Ryan. Shakespeare <laughs> and Love. Yes, exactly. You got you got it. Um, Terrence Malick, 1998, The Thin Red Line. Yeah. Um, another World War II story, this one of the Pacific Theater. Um, this is another cast that's just goes and goes and goes because it's a Terrence Malick movie and people line up to, to be in his movies. Um, I did not get this movie the first time I saw it. Uh, I think I was too... Deeply in the mindset of Saving Private Ryan, so six months later, when I went back to the theater and I saw another World War II movie, and it was so drastically different—a story and an approach—I was not ready for this. I don't. I, this was also my first Malick. This film is far more cerebral. It's far more interested in the nature of humans and the planet that they're fighting on uh than it is with humans fighting other humans um it's it's just far more philosophical uh and that is not the kind of thing that you usually hang a war movie on funnily enough i
1: did see this years ago um but i'm gonna just reserve comment i can't remember very much from it at all it was one of the first blu-rays i I bought but but there's a reason i bought it and it's so that i rewatch it and this is probably what i'll do in the next week (laughs)
0: It has aged incredibly well. Saving Private Ryan is handsome, but it's handsome in the way that it's desaturated. The Thin Red Line is lush. The Thin Red Line is a friggin', uh, you know, you could use it as like an expo on on a new TV set for how visually splendid it is with all those shots of like the 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 countryside and the the creatures that come and go, and there's scenes with natives. Um, But it is not a linear war story i mean there is one in there but it for the amount of plot versus the amount of time that the ratio is not what it should be it's which is crazy because it's based on a book by james jones who's the same author who wrote from here to eternity and i remember reading that book as a young man and and it's it's much more of a like not pulp fiction but it's much more of a linear story of the battle of guadalcanal to take Mm. that book and turn it into this movie that's a ballsy choice and and yeah, if, if somebody's ready for a different kind of war movie, I'd go to the Thin Red Line.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I think Malick is always about the beauty of nature and the beauty of things or the horror. Yeah. Um, and I think I think in that respect, you, that's a very different take to Spielberg. Because like, if you think about the kind of bookend element, which we were talking about. Yeah. That's a very functional yeah. narrative device. Yeah, you would never find anything like
0: that in a Terrence Malick movie.
1: Narrative device. Yeah. Uh not something Malick will be adhering yeah. to.
0: It's an interesting double feature, but it might give you a little bit of whiplash because the movies are two drastically different takes on the story of war. Uh Simon, you're up. What do you got next as another movie that somebody can go on to after taking part of Ryan? I'll go
1: 1917. Um obviously if this is only a couple of years ago, um, but of course, you know, I think you got a very similar kind of quality and a big influence, obviously on 1917 was quite clearly Saving Private Ryan.
0: 1917, Sam Mendes, um, that one starring George McKay and, uh, Dean Charles Chapman. This one set in World War One, which oddly enough does not get a whole lot of representation on film over time. Like, I think people kind of latch onto world war two a little bit more because i think nazis are sexier villains maybe um so okay we gotta we gotta talk about this for a second here because 1917 is known as the one of those one shot movies yeah were it not for the one shot would you still be coming down on the side of 1917 like like is this a film that elevates over its trick
1: I, I think it's one of those things where it's it's learnt from the best, you know what I mean. In that, you know, when you're when you're t- when you're taking lessons from, I think there's a bit of Stanley Kubrick's
0: Path of Paths of Glory, Glory? yeah,
1: Paths of Glory. That's right, and Saving Private Ryan. I mean, you're taking stuff from the best, but it is no Paths of Glory or no. Saving Private Ryan. You know no. what I mean, but. I mean, they're not bad reference points, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you know, you're getting some good stuff here, and I think in that respect, it's a really great film to watch. I mean, that moment when you go into that bunker and it's like pitch black. I mean, it's terrifying. Um, yeah, things, these moments are so well, well, well created, and I think in the context of war, that kind of breathless one shot. I, I think it's more of a trick in 1917 than the editing used in Dunkirk, for example. So in that respect, again. 1917 comes down on a kind of, oh, is it just doing this for a trick? But I do think the, the two marry together quite comfortably and they make that kind of, you know, uh, point about, you know, that nonstop nature of, of war that it's just ever going, continuing at, you know, at, at pace.
0: I've mentioned this once or twice in the past that now that we're at this stage technologically of what cameras and digital photography are able to do tricks like this are easier to pull off i still believe that there is merit in a good trick you know what i'm saying like if you can stage a shot in a way that allows you to seamlessly cut from take to take and you can map out these long shots in a way that lets you follow the action without completely disrupting the whole thing including like late in this movie when all hell is breaking loose and you're still following George McKay as he runs across a front line, there's, I do believe that there's value in a good trick. Plot-wise, I might say that this film is a little bit further back from Dunkirk and uh, Saving Private Ryan and, and The Thin Red Line because the actual nature of what they're doing I think is a little bit lesser than, than the other movies. But as I said, it's a pretty cool trick.
1: It works well, you know yeah. what I mean. I, yeah. I can't destroy that, but I do I, feel that it is a like you said, it it's not as impressive a film without the trick, as it were.
0: Yeah, that, well, what I usually say with this kind of thing is, whenever you've got a film that's a technical expo, um, I, I like to call, I like to point to Avatar, right? Avatar for for what it was doing at the time. Listen, the story is kind of thin, but the story is good enough to hang all of its technical prowess onto. 1917 as a story, all right, fine, but fine enough to hang all of this technical wizardry onto.
1: I don't entirely disagree, but I, I you know, it's a good film, and I think oh, it yeah. does. yeah, it yeah, quite yeah, Clearly owes a debt to David oh, yes. Ryan, yeah. and in that respect, it's it neat. It, it, they neatly go to go well together.
0: Yeah, I would never suggest that 1917 is a bad movie. Far from it, please. My final other side for this episode, um, I wanted to kind of come into the latter-day film career of steven spielberg because i think that people kind of tend to stop at saving private ryan and then tap out and they're ignoring <laughs> 20 years worth of movies um i went back just a few years i went back to 2015 um to a film i think is kind of underloved and in uh, like underappreciated in his canon when's the last time you thought about bridge of spies
1: when I was watching a program with Mark Rylance, and we, there's a kids' program in the UK where Mike Rylance does the voice of the of one of the characters. And oh, okay, every time I watch that. I'm like, an Oscar-winning actor is voicing yes. this cartoon character. Mental. Yes, absolutely. Um, the you program is called Bing. By the way, you should. Okay, I'll, I'll
0: I'll look into it. Um, It'll it yeah.
1: blow your mind. <laughs>
0: Plot wise, not a whole lot in common, um, except for the fact that it it picks up where World War Two like spilled into the Cold War um, after America and and the Soviet Union decided that they didn't like each other after fighting on the same side. Um, you know, it's 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 a movie with Tom Hanks at the center, but Tom Hanks playing more of a typical Tom Hanks type of character. I, why I wanted to go with Bridge of Spies, along with the fact that it's got the, Hank Spielberg connection, is. It's another film where the job at the center of the film comes into question, you know, like through Private Ryan, they're constantly questioning the order, even though they follow the order, but they're constantly questioning why they're doing what they're doing. That comes up again in Bridge of Spies, because you've got this American attorney who has to defend uh, a Russian spy, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are people who are like, Why are you putting your career on the line? Why are you putting your family in danger? Why are you putting your reputation through the mud for the enemy? And he has to be the one to stand there again and say, you know, we live by a set of principles and this is one of the principles. It's a handsome movie. It's well-performed. It's deceptively well-captured. And, you know, yeah, Mark Rylance, this is a guy who's been working forever But he does this movie, and hey, here's an Oscar for your trouble.
1: It was a great movie. I haven't seen it since I saw it at cinema. Um, But that's probably again a reason why why I should watch it again.
0: Spielberg, from like 2001 up to the present, it's a really mixed bag. You know, like I know there's a lot of movies in there that like cinephiles like to just totally dump on. Um, And but but the reality is that a lot of those movies. They're better than we give them credit for. Like Munich is a bloody masterpiece. Lincoln, I think, is is um, underappreciated. The Post, I thought, was one of the best movies of its year. Oh my God, yeah. This is a guy, you know, like he didn't stop with Saving Private Ryan. There's a lot of stuff in this century that is fantastic movies that deserve to be in the conversation with Schindler's List and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and and all of these movies. That, that people usually mention when they talk about Spielberg. And really and truly, I do believe that Bridge of Spies is one of them.
1: And going back to what we were talking about in, in the break, about w- we were talking about how that second watch is so important. Yeah. And I think we, when you're talking about something which is so political, so informed, so uh, historical as Bridge of Spies, again, you know, rewatching it when you kind of know the overall arch of the plot, arc of the plot, arch, what's wrong with that? Um, <laughs> arc the arc of the plot you know where it's going to go the general broad strokes you can really get into those more nuanced elements those details which you may not have picked up on the first time and i think spielberg i suspect a lot of these films from 2001 onwards you know are films where that second watch will be important ai coming to mind for 2001 in particular is something which was you know a lot of people were like oh dismissed it you know what i mean but you know again i think it's more
0: prescient now than it probably was even then yep i will also say that the opening sequence of bridge of spies it deserves to be mentioned in amongst spielberg's best sequences so they, the opening set piece of this movie is fantastic it's an editing master class if, if people haven't watched bridge of spies I, I i think i've probably overhyped it at this point um <laughs> give it a look it's really good it's, it's it's available on all the usual platforms it's it's easy to find Raiders, um, of
1: the, Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark is a good opening as well. I've it? heard. Yeah. And being around it's, yeah, Spielberg it's, openings.
0: It's been, it's been a minute. Uh, well, there we go. That's the birthday episode, episode 262 of the Matinee Cast. I am so thankful that uh, Simon Collum was able to come and celebrate uh, my 43rd year with me. Come on what back. Happened, Mo- Monday, June 11th, we'll be on episode 263. I think we'll be discussing In the Heights. Uh, we'll see how that goes um simon's always got things on the go um you've got a, a, a podcast that may come back at some point but mm. if people want to follow you on twitter and, and, and check out your wonderful piece of uh watercolor where can they find you
1: yeah at screen insights
0: very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can follow The Matinee Cast on all the old places. Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google, Stitcher Radio, Apple. Um, there's also new places. TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and PodChaser. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Saving Private Ryan can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email me, ryan at thematinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore ca and facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts mr column
1: no it's been a great pleasure happy birthday my man it's always uh, great to have a chat and uh, talk movies
0: thanks buddy <laughs> for simon i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee